had some classes up at Western Seminary last week, so uh, enjoyed that. But Portland is just fascinating. It's really nice to come home. You can get somewhere. Like, it's insane. I will never complain about traffic on 6th Street again. I mean, it's just awesome. I love it. It's like, ah, this is like three minutes, and then you're done. Like, I'm really going to complain about that when I'm stuck in traffic? Like, 20 minutes. I was meeting this guy for lunch, and it was like, or for dinner. It was like two miles away. Took me a half an hour. A half an hour. And you average that. That's like one mile per hour. I could have walked faster. It's crazy, but good to be home. Today, uh, we're hitting another topic. If you're new here, here's what we've been doing. We, back on January 2017, we started a series called The Dirty Dozen, where we actually asked you guys a couple months before that, give us your tough topics. Give us the things that you want to have addressed. And a group of us got together, kind of hammered them out, and we hammered down to 12 topics we call The Dirty Dozen. And they are kind of a mixture of... Uh, topics that maybe are a little bit awkward or untalked about, those kind of things. So we've done marijuana. Uh, we did ISIS. Uh, we did what's a, the role of a woman in church. That we call that barefoot and pregnant. I called it barefoot and pregnant, just to confuse you. Uh, last week, James did a great job. He talked about why church. And we want him to do that because when I say it, you're like, it's just your job. Well, he is a guy that is brilliantly involved here, has a full-time job, just all kinds of other stuff. So a great job on that. Today, we're going to talk about pleasure. And when I started looking at this a couple weeks ago, I knew there's no way I can do this in one, in one time. Well, I could, but it'd be super long. So I took pleasure and I cut it into two chunks. So this week, we're going to talk about what I call the philosophy of pleasure And then next week, we'll talk about practically what does that mean for Christians? Uh, What are we allowed to do? What are we not allowed to do when it comes to pleasure? All right? So that's kind of where we're headed this week and next week. So I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes, if you want to know philosophy, just look at Ecclesiastes. It is the most philosophical book in your Bible, and it's one of my favorites because it's brutally honest. In fact, I am thinking about, we're doing the Gospel of Matthew right now on Wednesday nights, By the way, you're invited. Gospel of Matthew is phenomenal. Uh, Last Wednesday, we looked at Jesus. The very first thing he does after he's baptized, guess what he does? Face off with Satan. Like, why is that? Well, there's all these implications to that. So just a brilliant book. It bridges so much of like, why is this happening in the Old Testament? And what does it look like in the New Testament? Matthew bridges that. Brilliant. So you can come out Wednesday. So I'm thinking about when we're done with that, jumping into Ecclesiastes, because it's that kind of book. So here's what I want to do. Before we get to Solomon and his pleasure, you have to look at the background before Solomon goes for pleasure, okay? Most people believe Solomon wrote this book. I think so. So here it is, chapter 1, verse 12, Ecclesiastes. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart, I worked hard, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So fascinating. He just said studying is an unhappy business. Many young people would say, amen, dropping out. Verse 14, 
I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And I said in my heart, I have, inqu- I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. Here's what Solomon just said. I worked hard. I studied hard. I read hard. I looked at it. So Solomon, before he goes pleasure, he's saying this. I'm not a lazy dude. I didn't choose pleasure as a cop-out to get out or escape from something. I actually studied really hard, and I looked into things. He's the A-plus student. He's the guy that you want in your team. He's Bill Gates. He goes for it, works hard. But in the end, here's what he says. It's like striving after the wind. It's frustrating. It's fruitless. It's worthless. It's hard right? It's like this. It's like trying to put a two-year-old to bed. You ever tried that? You know how hard that is? I have a two-year-old. I call him a slinky. I go upstairs, I put him in, guess what what happens? Ding, 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 comes downstairs. He always has a reason. Mine, why are you downstairs? My jammies are too tight. No, they're not, bro. I want you to read me a story. I already read you a story. Read me another story. I'm not reading you another story. Tell me about Jesus. You never tell me about Jesus. (laughs) Okay, propitiation, son. (laughs) open your Bible to Exodus. No. (laughs) They know how to get you. They know how to get you. So it's like that. It's like frustrated. So Solomon's like, I've studied really hard and I just got frustrated. Now why? Because there's a phrase in here you have to remember. He repeats it over and over and he says this, what's done under the sun. So what Solomon is saying is this, I looked at life purely academically. We call it today naturalism. Naturalism is this. It's the assumption that there is no God, so let's study things without God. Naturalism. So Solomon does the same thing. He's like, I just want to look at life. If I took God out of the equation and I just studied and kind of looked at things, what would it be? And his conclusion is, it's so frustrating. It's worthless. It's like trying to catch wind. Okay? So then, that, that's the setup. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. So I think Solomon's about 30 years old here. He's done the academic thing. He's got his PhD. He's studied. He's wise, brilliant dude. And then at 30, he just freaks out. This thing has no meaning. There's no worth to life. Forget it. You met somebody like that? I do. I know people like that. Like they seem like they were on it for 30 years, 35 years, 40 years. And all of a sudden they just say, forget it. I'm checking out. That's what Solomon does. But he's done it after he studied really hard and tried to figure out life without God. Okay? And here's how he pleasures himself. Number one, it's verse three. I call it altered state. Number one, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he's done the academic thing. He's studied. He's just kind of found life meaningless. And so step number one, I'm going to find pleasure. I'm going to find it and getting drunk. 
I'm going to go for wine. So he's going Saturday, Applegate Valley Wine Trail, and then drop me off at the Wonder Blur. That's number one. That's not doing it for him. So number two, verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So now he goes, not just altered state, he goes number two, achievement. I'm going to achieve something. He goes, lifestyles of the rich and famous. MTV Cribs. Bravo's million dollar listings, right? He goes big. The Bible tells us this. He worked on his house for seven years. Now, I know there's some dude in back who's like, me too. Yeah, Solomon did not fix up a single white in Selma. He had 10,000 people working for seven years on his home. You're talking a massive, incredible structure. So he just goes, achievement. Here's why. If there's no reason to live, then I'm going to suck everything out of this life I can. I'm achieving. And then thirdly, verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. And I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, the delight of the sons of men. Number three, acquisition. I'm just going to buy stuff. He becomes a hoarder, but what he hoards is the stuff of kings, gold, silver, singers. He just buys singers. He's on a level that's pretty amazing. And then lastly, verse 9 says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I was an idiot, not a fool. And verse 10 Whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Men, what is the desire of a man's eye? Ladies, right? He goes ladies. And if you know Solomon's story, he marries 700 wives, and then he has what's called 300 concubines. That's just a way of saying 300 girlfriends with benefits. He's got 1,000 women. Like, sometimes I just sit, I just go, whoa. Like, what's his shoe bill? <laughs> FedEx is landing planes and Amazon's just pulling pallets off that thing. Just, here you go, man. <laughs> They're ordering stuff. Pay for it. It's crazy. Here's what's really crazy. You go forward to chapter 7, verse 28. He talks about friendships. And he says, of a thousand women, I still haven't found the one. Think about that for a second. He had every eye color, every body shape, everything imaginable, every personality, everything. He still said, I'm still looking for the one. It's ridiculous. Still, men do the same thing. So you got Solomon here. He goes for pleasure. Now, I want to back up a minute, and I want you to look at verse 3 because it's very important to get to this this point. So I read chapter 1. It it says, verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Why did he need to cheer up? 
chapter one, right? When I studied everything under the sun, it was frustrating and futile and meaningless. Solomon's no dummy. He was asking himself big questions. Like, why are we here? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there even a universe? Right? What am I for? What happens when I die? And if there is no God, when you die, nothing matters. Do you understand that? If one day our universe, which the naturalists would say, one day our universe will just go cold. It will measure negative 273.1 degrees Celsius. Cold. There'll be no light. There'll be nothing. What you did or did not do would not matter in that system. That's the weight that Solomon is under as a bright dude who studied it. And so he just said, I'm going to cheer myself up. There is no reason for living. It's called existentialism. People say Nietzsche was the first existentialist. No way. Solomon was. He's got it right here. There is no reason to live. Life is hopeless, so let's go get drunk. That's what he's saying. And in this system, it actually makes sense. And here's what's fascinating to me. Solomon lives out the very history of Western civilization. Do you know that? We started with God, right? We believe in this God and and kind of, it drove Western civilization forward. But then we had this thing called the Enlightenment. We did chapter one. Let's study this thing. Naturalism without God. Let's study it and see what we come up with. Out of that has produced what we have today. We are a pleasure-seeking society because we found out, you know what? Without God, nothing matters. So let's cheer ourselves up with whatever we want. Wine, women, drugs, heroin, acquisition, bigger houses, more things. We've done exactly what Solomon has done right here because there's no, I mean, we're all trying to find worth then. If there's nothing bigger to live for, then I guess pleasure is it. So let's get everything we possibly can out of pleasure. That's our society today. That is culture in America. And I love like the verbs he used, or they're actually not verbs, they're nouns. He uses in verse two. He uses two ones, they're two Hebrew words. It's translated laughter and pleasure. They're fascinating. Because laughter is this, it's the throaty, orgy, out of control kind of pleasure people seek. And then the other word is translated pleasure in my Bible. Is, it's the more refined cultural side. So one side is, man, go to a party and get smashed. And the other side is, let's go buy some art. Let's go buy a Picasso. One's uptown, the other one's downtown. One's highbrow, one's lowbrow. One is a hipster drinking his Pabst Blue Ribbon. And the other is an elegant ball with people taking shots of Pappy Van Winkle. One is filet mignon in a beautiful outdoor setting. The other is a bunch of rednecks burning something, eating hamburger helper out of an aluminum pot. (laughs) And they're both driven from the same goal. I don't have meaning in life. It's just a different way of doing it. He uses those two words because he does both. He goes for it. And at the end of the day, here's what he says. It's worthless. Now, Solomon's unique in his day because he could explore these things at a level that, you know, very few people could have at this time. He's the 1%, right? He's a 0.1%. He's a 0.00001%. So he explores this at a, at a depth, thousand women. Like, that, that's pretty rare. And what's his conclusion to all this? Well, look down at verse 15. 
Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? If we're just going to die and there is nothing after this life, why have I worked so hard to make good decisions? We're just going to die. Nothing's going to matter. Who cares? All right? So here's how he concludes. Verse 17. So I hated life. Verse 18. I hated my toil. What was Solomon's job? Told us in chapter 1, he was king. How hard is being king? Probably not that hard. And yet he hates it because he could derive no pleasure from it, nothing that had value for him. And then verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. He becomes suicidal, depressed, because he's starting to think to himself, I had this great zest for life in my teens, in my 20s, but here's what I'm finding. What I really thought, meant, what I really thought life was about is never going to happen to me, so forget it. Ever felt that weight? That's what Solomon feels right here. Depressed, suicidal, forget it. We see this repeated, don't we, in society? Who here has watched the biography on Amy Winehouse? Hardcore, brilliantly talented young lady, dead at 27. They have a club now, it's called Club 27. It's this ever-expanding list of very, very influential popular, powerful people that are all dead at 27. Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. The list just goes on and on and on and on. Amy Winehouse. Why? I think they're like Solomon. These people have reached the top, felt things, done things that we would all say, wow, that's so awesome. And they're like, it's really not that awesome. And I have nothing to live for now. Because what I really thought was going to make me happy, what I really thought was going to do it for me, I've got it all. And now I am hating life, hating my job, and fully depressed. But I would say this. Today, it's not just celebrities. Today, you and I, we have the ability to live like ancient kings. You know that? We can do chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in a way that no society has ever done. We can We can acquire things, we can achieve things, we can numb ourselves, we can alter our states. We're like never before. The desire of the eye, it's everywhere now. And here's what it's doing to us. This is what's fascinating to me. Um, There's a study on depression. If you took your life today, exactly like you are, and compared it to somebody just like you in 1960, you are 10 times more likely to to be depressed. Why is that? Because we can do 1 through 10 a lot better. They couldn't. They still had that hope out there. If I just get there, I'll be happy. Well, we can do it now. And we're like, mm, depressed. The average age of depression in 1960, 29. You know what it is today? 14 and a half. Cut in half. You know why? Because they can do things that people, ancient kings dreamed of. Your 14-year-old can do it now. And what they're finding is just like Solomon, there's, n- there's no worth to life. There's just no worth to life. That's just a problem. I don't find any worth in life. And our culture is so good at vomiting out new things to acquire or achieve or alter your state. 
just constantly churning it out like never before. So this is where we live today. And it's starting to affect us. So there is, I'm looking forward to actually reading it, but there's this Barna study coming out. And, and what he did was this. George Barna looked at pornography really in depth. And, and I think this, in the 1960s, if you look at the sexual revolution, it altered our society. It just changed the way that we interrelate. It changed everything about American society. It was just a perfect confluence of things. The pill, um, this kind of unrest in our country, all these things kind of, kind of came together and changed everything about American society. You compare 1950 to 1970, dramatically different country, right? Well, we have what I call today the porn revolution. And I think it's going to do the same thing to the way our society relates. So Barna starts looking into this, and it's, the whole report's not out for another week or two, but they release some like little tidbits, like, Check this out. Two of them that were fascinating to me was, number one, millennials believe not recycling is more immoral than habitually looking at porn. Fascinating to me. Number two, they say this, the big growth area for pornography is young women. And so they asked these young ladies, why is this? Here was their answer. Relationships are too hard. So 1960s, you've been set free, you can do what you want. Now, hey, those relationships are too hard. I want an easier way to be pleasured. That was their answer. That pleasure is too hard. It's too risky. Uh, I got to invest in somebody. I got to actually talk to them. I got to, you know, you know, they didn't get mad at me. Too hard. This is easier. Because if pleasure becomes our king, then you want the easiest pleasure possible. That's where we're at today. So I'm not a prophet, but I think something like this is going to happen. Um, I read a Great article, it's called The Neurologist Who Hacked His Own Brain. Google it, it's on the New Yorker. It's a fantastic article. Just this brilliant neurosurgeon who, he's not, he doesn't even do surgery anymore. He's like the PhD dude that teaches people. Like brilliant. He goes rogue, has to leave America and actually have these implants put in his brain because he wants to try his own brain. Like fiddle with his own brain. Like it's, it's, this is such a great time to be alive. Like when could you do something like that? So he just, I mean, he just goes rogue, does this, and starts writing about it. Like, it, it flipped out his brain for a while. Uh, just amazing. Uh, so we have this capacity now to do crazy things with our brains. And then the other side, there's this study on rats. They took rats, and they trained them on three levers. Lever one, if a rat pushes that, their favorite food came out. Yum. Lever number two, they pushed a lever, and there was a drug that they had gotten addicted to that would come out. Lever number three was connected to an electrode in their brain that zapped their pleasure center and just dumped dopamine into their brain. Just instant pleasure. Guess what they found in those rats? They just stood on lever number three until they starved to death and died. Why? Because eating's too hard. And, and taking drugs takes energy, but this, I just go, Duh! I just wonder if that's where we're headed. If pleasure's king, then we want it as easy as possible. Relationship, those things are hard. I'm just going to press a lever. It won't even be press a lever. It'll be like more, more, more. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. <laughs> You've succeeded in making pleasure depressing. I know. I worked really hard on that. It doesn't end there. Skip forward with me, if you would, to chapter 3, verse 11. This is one of the more unique verses in the Bible. The only other place that something is even mirrored like it is Romans chapter 8. 
He has made, this is God, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I don't have time to unpack all that, but there's one phrase I want you to think through. It says this, that God has put into us eternity into our hearts. How big is eternity? Really big. God has put endlessness into the human heart. That's why if you look back at verse 15 of chapter one, when he's doing the academic thing, he says this, what is lacking cannot be counted. Like the giganticness of my heart, the the capacity I have, I can't even count it. It's too big. The problem with pleasure is this, it's capacity. It's always too small. That God has actually designed us too big. We are heaven mixed with earth. Do you know that? When God created the animal kingdom, he just spoke and they became. When God created humanity, what did he do? He formed us from the dirt and then he breathed into us life, heaven. When we only focus on earth, that's all we get. But when we realize, hey, we are a mixture of heaven and earth, that's what we are. When you get that, when you understand that, you actually end up with heaven. So the naturalist says, we're just cultured animals. And God would say, oh, no, you aren't. You are this beautiful mixture of both heaven and earth. I have put eternity into your heart. We can sense it every once in a while. Music, to me, is one of the ways that we sense that. Have you ever heard a song that when you hear it, it's, it's like it almost plucks a chord in your heart, and for a moment you hear that song, or you're listening to that song, and you are, for a moment, just transported away. Where all of a sudden, it feels like you have purpose, and you're full, and there's all this stuff that just happens to you with music. Has that ever happened to you? It hits you, it strikes you, it has power. But what's the problem with that song? You go tired of it. You listen to it a thousand times or a hundred times, and it doesn't do it anymore for you. Why? Because your capacity is too great. It was able to strike that chord once, twice, 10, 15, 20 times, but eventually you're like, ah. Like, who here still listens to, here's my number, call me maybe. (laughs) If you raise your hand, they will not judge you. I will, but they will not judge you. (laughs) Nobody, why? Because it's lost its ability to do anything. That's music. Music has a capacity every once in a while just to strike you and you're like, ah, oh, yes, purpose, meaning, fulfillment, but then it, you go tired of it. If that sounds familiar, it should because it's from a very famous essay by C.S. Lewis. And I'll just read the conclusion of it because there's a little phrase at the end of it that I love. It's one of my favorite phrases. He says this, quote, if they, this music or whatever it is, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, They turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart of the worshiper. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. It is a music we were born remembering. I love that phrase. The reason why music every once in a while can strike a chord is because it hits a music we are actually born, designed, remembering. And for a moment we have purpose, and for a moment we have transcendence, and for a moment it feels like, yes, life is right. 
but then our capacity is too great and it just gets sucked into eternity and disappears. There's another illustration I want to give, and then we'll, I'll try to wrap this up. Have you ever heard the saying, uh, don't go shopping on an empty stomach? Why is that? Because you'll buy aisle five. <laughs> right? The freezer section. Like, why do I have this stuff? Because I was hungry. In that moment, what happened was this. The tail wagged the dog. Right? You're supposed to control those urges, You're, but those urges all of a sudden override you, and you are dominated by them, and they override you, and you become enslaved to them. It's all Romans 6, by the way. That's Romans 6. These desires, these appetites that aren't bad, they're wagging you right now, and you become a slave to them, and they're unable to ever satisfy you, and you're going to be destroyed by them. Don't let the tail wag the dog. So here's the core issue. Here is the solution, I believe. Turn with me to, well, there'll be be two verses, but first, it's Psalm 1611. And listen to this. It's everything Solomon wants. This is his dad, David. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What's being said there? Number one, God, you give me purpose, right? You show me the path of life. You show me what life is all about. You show me that, no, this world does not one day go to 273 Point one degrees negative Celsius. It doesn't do that. There is a kingdom that you're building and you're inviting us into that kingdom to cooperate with you and partner with you. You show me the very path of life, what I was designed for. Purpose. Number two, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. What we really want are emotions to be overridden, that pluck that music can do. God says, I will fill you with that joy. And then at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. True pleasure. The New Testament says this. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17. That God has given to us as believers everything to enjoy. God has given to us everything to enjoy. Why? Because when you get this understanding, the tail doesn't wag the dog anymore. You're not enslaved to those things anymore. You're not trying to derive something from them they cannot do. You realize it's just a pluck on my heartstring, but it's not itself, it. That's that's what's being said here. Well, Matt, I'll tell you what, I've been in church a long time, and I feel a lot more like Solomon than his dad, David. I feel like I hate life. I hate my job. I'm depressed. What about me? Let me give you a test. It's a very important test. I challenge you to think about this test today. Because here's the thing. Solomon was a very religious guy. He built the temple. He made sacrifices, right? Very religious guy. He wasn't irreligious. And I think there is a vast difference between a religious person and a believer in Jesus. And here's the vast vast difference. Religious people find God useful. Jesus people 
find him beautiful. And that's the difference. So a religious person says, God, you are useful to me. If I do these things right, then you will give me my three wishes. It's like rubbing the genie. You will forgive me of my sins, as important as that is. God is useful to them. But he's not really beautiful. And really all you're doing is you're just adding another category here to pleasure. Because you're really asking God, God, I want you to do these things so I'm happy and pleased. God just becomes another one of your things. Altered state, achievement, desire of the eye, accomplishment. And God, you need to also satisfy my desires. So God just becomes another idol for you. That's all he is. People that have found Jesus to be beautiful, here's what happens to them. They have their heart removed and a new heart is given to them, a heart of flesh that can feel. The new covenant says this, that God will then write his very will upon the tablets of our hearts, that we will be to him a people and he will be to us a God. It's a relationship because Jesus is beautiful. So much stronger, so much better. Listen to what David says a little bit later. It's Psalm 27.4. I call it my addict psalm. One thing have I asked of Yahweh, and that will I sing after, seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. David said, I become an addict to this thing right here, to see him as beautiful. It's like a marriage. Men on Valentine's Day, when you wrote the card to your wife, did you write there, honey, I find you so useful. (laughs) You are as good as my DeWalt chop saw. Your husband. No way, why? It might be true, but we don't say it. Because we know relationships are supposed to be deeper and better and stronger and transcend utilitarian things. Religious people find God utilitarianly, utilitarianly good. Believers in Jesus find him beautifully good. And it's a massive difference in life. We have communion. Communion is, Jesus says, these are the elements of the new covenant. That you come in through these elements because you believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are invited into this new kingdom. But guess what? You can look at communion utilitarian-like. For thousands of years, that's the way the the church looked at communion. Hey, you do whatever you want during the week, but you come in here and you sip the wine and you eat the bread and it's all good. We can look at it that way. Or you can look at communion as, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. That God demonstrated his love toward me, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That there's no greater love that a man has for his friend than to lay down his life for him. Beautiful. We love him because he first loved us. Beautiful. And he made him no sin. He made him sin who knew no sin so that you and I might be made the righteousness of God. That's the difference. Is Jesus beautiful to you or useful? 
You can see it in the very, very elements of communion. Some people say, well, I like, love communion because I get forgiveness. Oh, that's true. Yeah, okay. You were really forgiven on the cross. I challenge you to see communion as, Jesus, you are so beautiful to me. Capture my heart again. Get the core of who I am so that I might have the path of life, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore that come with relationship, knowing you because you're beautiful. So I want you to take just a minute and I want you to think for a second, really honestly, how do I view Jesus? How do I view communion? Am I using God for my end or do I love him because of who he is? One's religion, one is believing in Jesus Christ. Where are you at? Take a minute, think about it. We'll take communion together. Father, I pray that you would forgive me, for, uh, forgive us for treating you like a genie, treating you like another avenue for our own pleasure. Forgive me for using you. I pray that you would Break the hardness of hearts in Edgewater Christian Fellowship. The hardness of my heart that is unable to see your incredible beauty. And I pray that you would replace it with that heart that says this one thing, this one thing is what I want. And I'm going to seek after it, to see your beauty, to inquire of you, to know you so that you are our God and we are your people. That's what this is about. I pray as we partake in your broken body, given for us, for yes, the forgiveness of sin. For yes, the propitiation of wrath that was against us. But Jesus, you did it for the joy set before you. Because you are calling out a people, a bride. You did it because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. may we see the beauty of the cross in communion. Let's eat together.
But Father, I thank you for the power that resides in communion. Your word says that when it's abused, people are getting sick and dying. How much more the opposite must be true that we get life and health, these elements. When we give it worth, value, when we see it as beautiful, the ultimate sacrifice. So I pray that we would drink this day health, path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. May we drink those things as well. Let's drink together. Thank you for being our king who became our savior and our friend. May Edgewater Christian Fellowship, may we be a community that sees the beauty of Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.